Welcome ladies and gentlemen to the Storytellers Podcast. This is where you find your imaginations unveiled and you get handcrafted stories. This episode is a breaking episode in which you get true crime stories and this is not a continuation episode of the previous episode. In the previous episode, it was a story about A.J. Shirley who's really into solving crimes. So, if you hadn't listened to it yet, then go to the first episode and listen to it. You will love it, I betcha. And now coming to this episode. This episode features about this a sort of explicit content episode. So, if there are someone kids watching or listening out there, then please just pause it and go back because I would not recommend children listening to them. Listener discretion is required. Coming to our episode, we are going to talk about Sylvia Likens murder case. This is one of the Indiana's most infamous crimes. She was tortured so badly. She was like, when I was reading her story, I shed tears. I was nearly I cried. Like, who could torture a sweet little 16-year-old girl? That was so painful, actually. When uh, I was hearing screams in the movie, I don't know if they were properly simulated or if they sounded same. But when I just heard in the movie, I know it wasn't real, they were acting. But when I heard in the movie, I, I couldn't watch it completely in once because uh, it was like, who the fuck on the earth could torture a little girl like this? I was feeling it. I, the blood in my veins was rushing. I don't know why. But really guys, I never expected someone would be so ruthless to torture and kill a 16 years girl. Now going into the list of the criminals, there were just one or two guys there were lots of assholes living in Indianapolis back then. So this woman was not just a woman, she's a evil devil. Okay, now getting into the story, we are naming it Lycans Likely Got Murdered. Wait, wait, no, no, no. Lycans Unlikingly Got Murdered. Getting into the details of the criminals. First criminal, like accused one or the top one who started this crime, like the big bitch in the gang, is Gertrude Baniswiski. She served for 20 years in the jail and she was originally found guilty of first degree of murder. Gertrude, or Gertie, as she was sometimes called, was sentenced to life in prison. A judgment confirmed by a 1971 retrial during her years at the Indiana Women's Prison, she was considered a moral prisoner, earned the nickname of Mom. Fucking shit. This woman is like a Oscar actress. She killed, this woman literally killed and tortured a little girl and she was considered as a moral prisoner and in the nickname of mom. What the fuck is happening? Now continuing. In spite of widespread public outcry, she was paroled in 1985. She moved to Iowa, changed her name to 
Nady Van Fussen and died of lung cancer on June 16, 1990. She never took responsibilities for her crime, claiming she couldn't remember her actions. I never thought she was insane, Bumpo says. I thought she was a downtrodden, mean woman. Said the Bumpo, this woman is really actress. She shouldn't have been a normal woman. She needed a whole sponsoring of MGM so that she could act in movies. What a bitch. Coming to the next accused person, Paula Beniswesky. She served seven years in prison when Gertrude, a sickly asthmatic, didn't feel up to disciplining Sylvia. She relied on her oldest child, Paula, to help out, which she did. Enthusiastically, she was 17 at the time and it was rumored that she and Sylvia disliked each other from the start. Of course, Sylvia is nearly 16 years and this girl was around 17 years, so maybe a teenager rivalry must be out in them. In 1966, Paula was convicted of second-degree murder, but when her conviction was overturned in 1971 on a technicality, she pleaded guilty to voluntary manslaughter rather than a face a retrial. She got 2 to 21 years, but in spite of attempting a prison break, she was paroled in March 1972 and was released completely in March 1974. How the fuck can you release such a person? Such a ruthless person should be just rotten in the jail. No, for the God's sake, she just left her in March 1974. She changed her name to Paula Pace and wasn't heard from again until 2012, when she was discovered living in the small town Iowa hamlet of Marshalltown and working for the school system in the neighboring town of Conrad. Pace Banaswski, the mother of two grown sons, wasn't charged with any additional crimes but was fired from her job for providing false information on her employee application. Since then, she was once more slipped off the grid. Stephanie Banaswski She never served in the jail. The second oldest of the Banaswski children, Stephanie was 15 at the time of the crime. Though she admitted to participating to some time degree in Sylvia's abuse, She was granted a special trial and then all the charges against her were dropped. Likely because she agreed to turn state's evidence against her family, she reportedly changed her name, married, had children, worked as teacher, and now she lives in Florida. John Banaswski The third oldest of the Banaswski children and an active participant in Sylvia's torture. John was 12 when she died. Convicted of manslaughter, he became the Indiana State Reformatory's youngest inmate. Serving just two years before being released, he changed his name to John Blake and drifted aimlessly before experiencing a religious epiphany that, he said, helped him see the error of his ways. Allegedly, the only member of the Banaswesky clan to show public remorse for his deeds. He made no attempt to hide his past and even spoke about it publicly on occasion. Reportedly, a lay minister and real estate agent with a wife and three children. He died of cancer in 2005 at age 52. In a masterpiece of understatement, he once told a reporter that my mom was a very selfish, self-centered woman. Mary Banaswesky, she never served in prison. 
fourth oldest of the Banaswaski children, Mary was 11 when the torture took place. No charges were brought against her. She testified during the trial, becoming the sole member of the Banaswaski family to cry on the stand during questioning. She reportedly still lives in Indiana. Shirley Banaswaski, fifth oldest of the Banaswaski children. Shirley was the youngest of the family to actively participate in Sylvia's torture. Although the 10-year-old heated a needle that was used to burn the victim, she was never charged with any crime. Her whereabouts today are unknown. James Banaswaski Because he was only 8 at the time, James was not arrested nor called to testify. Although some reports suggested he played a role in the crime, of all Banaswaski's offspring, the least is known about him. Dennis Lee Wright Jr. He is not a culprit in this case. He is like a saint, I guess. The youngest of the Banaswaski children, Dennis was a newborn when Sylvia met her fate. He was the son of Gertrude's lover, Denny Lee Wright Sr., who abandoned the family shortly after his namesake's birth. Supposedly, he was placed in foster care and was later adopted by the White family, who changed his name to Daniel Lee White. He died in 2012 in California. Coy Hubbard He served two years in prison. A neighborhood kid and Stephanie Banaswiski's boyfriend. Hubbard was a full participant in Sylvia's torture. His contributions, including using her as a practice dummy for judo flips and punches and showing her down the basement stairs, convicted of manslaughter. He served under two years before being released. What the Fuck, dude, this guy practices a live girl for his judo flips and punches and he shoves her down the basement stairs and this guy just gets away after two years in prison? How? What the fuck is this? Alright, his attorney Forrest Bauman Jr. remembers running into him in the early 1970s when he stopped at a near downturn gas station where Hubbard happened to work. He was very effusive and said, Come inside. I want to introduce you to my boss. Bowman recalled and he said, I said, Sure, that was the last I had contact with him. Oddly, Hubbard never changed his name and reportedly remained in the Indianapolis area most of his adult life. He was tried for another murder in 1982 but acquitted. He also reported lost his job in 2007 when the movie An American Crime about the Sylvia Likens case debuted. He died in June of that year in Shelbyville. Good. Looks like someone has killed him after watching that movie, I guess. Or maybe he suicided himself after knowing how bad he has done for a girl. I guess so. Richard Hobbs. He served two years in the prison. Another neighborhood kid who tortured Sylvia. Hobbs' performance, the infamous act of helping the, helping to crave the owns, I am a prostitute and proud of it into her stomach with a large needle. Okay, so uh, this asshole, what the? The macabre task was begun by Gertrude, but when she became too fatigued to finish, Hobbs stepped in. Okay. Convicted of manslaughter, he served a short sentence and died of cancer in 1972 at age 21. That's it, boys. That's how karma strikes everybody. Every asshole in this murder case is dead of cancer. Wow, what a short karma. Now, Lester C. Lycan, Sylvia's father, 
so sad. He was a carnival worker who decided to leave his kids with a third party while he and his wife Betty were on the road. His only crime was that he didn't wet the Banaswski home more thoroughly before leaving two of his daughters in Gertrude's custody. He and Gertrude got to talking and she said she would take care of the children and treat them like her own. He recalled at the trail. Lester apparently believed her because during several subsequent trips to the house, the last on October 5, just weeks before his daughter's death, he noticed nothing out of the order. Not that there was much to see, considering the only portions of the Banaswski abode he ever entered were the living room and once the kitchen. He reportedly died in February 2013 at the age of 1886 in Fontana, California. Betty Likens Visibly devastated, Sylvia's mother gave only short responses on the witness stand at the trial. She divorced Lester in 1967, remarried, and died on May 29, 1988, so in 1998, at age 71. She was buried in Crown Hill Cemetery, where she shares a headstone with her brother. So these were the people who were involved in Celia's Lycan's death. Now coming to her murder story. So this article was published on Medium, which is an application available on either Play Store or App Store. So you can type M-E-D-I-U-M in the search box, hit enter, and just go download it and watch more amazing articles down there. This was published by Heather Monroe on Medium. This is a warning. This article discusses child abuse, torture, sexual abuse, and murder in sometimes graphic detail. Sylvia Mary Likens, born on January 3, 1949, was the third child of Lester and Elizabeth Likens. She had four siblings, an older set of twins, Diana and Daniel, and a younger set of twins, Jenny and Benny. Sylvia was sweet 16 in 1965. She loved roller skating and beetles. Sylvia had long wavy brown hair and a bright smile despite missing a front tooth due to an accident with her brother. Her family called her Cookie. Sylvia cared for her little sister Jenny who had a limped leg due to polio. She enjoyed spending her babysitting money on trips to the skating rink with Jenny. Sylvia fastened one skate to Jenny's sturdy foot and held her hand so she could skate with the other kids. In 1965, Sylvia met Paula and Stephanie Baniswiski at Arsenal Technical High School. On June 3, 1965, Sylvia's mother was arrested for shoplifting. Lester sold concessions at carnivals and usually took the boys with him but could not bring his daughters. Since the Lycans and Baniswiski girls got along, Lester decided to send Sylvia and Jenny to live with Gertrude. He agreed to pay $20 each week for their board and care. Gertrude promised to care for the girls as if they were their own. Gertrude Baniswski Niwon Fosan What a long name. Gertrude Baniswski Niwon Fosan was born on September 19, 1928. She was married to John Stephen Baniswiski 
when she was 16 years old. The couple had four children together. John became physically violent towards Gertrude and divorced him in 10 years. Weeks later, she married Edward Gertrude. He too turned out to be abusive and they divorced within two months. Gertrude remarried her first husband and had two more children and divorced for the second time. Next, Gertrude met 22-year-old Dennis Lee Wright and the unwed couple had one son together, Dennis Jr. in 1965. Dennis abandoned Gertrude and the baby. She filed a paternity suit against him, though she never saw a penny. By 1965, Gertrude was a haggard, chain-smoking, single mom of seven living in Squalor at 3850 East New York Street in Indianapolis, Indiana for $55 a month. Initially, the Banizwiski family treated Sylvia and Jenny kindly as promised. The Lycans and Banizwiski girls spent time singing popular songs and gossiping about boys. The Banizwiski home was a kind neighborhood children would come and go from as they pleased. They could get away with things their parents wouldn't allow. Smoking, drinking, even raunchy sex talk happened before Gertrude's eyes. Gertrude's 13th pregnancy had just ended in her sixth miscarriage. She was tired and looked twice her 31 years. But to add to her full plate, 17-year-old was pregnant by a married man. Sylvia and Jenny shared a bedroom with 11-old Mary, 10-old Shirley, and 8-old Jimmy Banswiski. The room had one mattress on the floor that five children took turns sleeping in. Regretfully, Lester Likens never stepped foot in the home of the woman they hired to care for their daughters. If they had, they would have noticed there weren't enough beds. The house had a hot plate where the stove should have been. Gertrude was in no position to take in children to care. Gertrude was suffering for money. Without the weekly $20, she had no way to feed all nine children and still pay rent. She was glad Mr. Likens paid $20 up front, but when the future payments arrived late or not at all, she became enraged. The, the Likens sisters became the object of Gertrude's contempt. After the first late payment, she dragged Jenny up the stairs and whipped her with leather belt. Well, I took care of you two bitches for a week for nothing, she growled. The money arrived in the mail the day after the first panking. Sylvia and Jenny's parents came a few days later and gave another advance payment. The sisters said nothing of the beating. When Gertrude learned that Sylvia was recycling pop bottles for cash, she cut loose on her with a quarter-inch wooden paddle. She hit her repeatedly across the back in the head. When Gertrude became weak due to chronic bronchitis, she handed the paddle to Paula. The abuse increased in frequency and severity. Gertrude may have felt sorry for Jenny due to her fragility because by August 1965, Gertrude concentrated her outburst on Sylvia. Sylvia admitted she had a boyfriend in California. Gertrude was disgusted and was, and so was her daughter Paula who repeatedly kicked Sylvia in her vaginal area and accused her of being pregnant. Not only she was subjected to beatings, but Gertrude also started abusing Sylvia with food. Sylvia began to forage for food in dumpsters. 
When Gertrude Cotillia, she, Paula, and a neighborhood child named Randy Lepper forced her to eat a hot dog loaded with copious amounts of condiments and spices. When Sylvia threw up, the trio made her eat the vomit. The girls returned to the school in the fall, which pleased their father. Gertrude accused Sylvia of spreading rumors that Paula and Stephanie were prostitutes. Gertrude admonished the girls in front of her own children and their friends. Stephanie's 15-year-old boyfriend, Coy Hubbard, attacked Sylvia in response. Stephanie snickered as Gertrude taunted Sylvia by calling her filthy names. Gertrude accused Sylvia of stealing gym clothes. As punishment, she burned her fingertips with a lit match while screaming that she hated Sylvia and now she was ruining her life. Somehow, the subject turned to Sylvia's alleged promiscuity. You should never do anything with a boy until you are married, Gertrude cautioned. Sylvia replied, she hadn't, which only infuriated Gertrude. You should never, Gertrude shrieked and she kicked in Sylvia's pubic area repeatedly. Kicking Sylvia did not satiate Gertrude. She made Sylvia strip naked and insert a glass cola bottle into her vagina while her child accomplices watched and laughed. Sylvia's parents checked on their daughters on October 5. Again, they kept the secret, afraid of making it worse. As abusers do, Gertrude banned them from seeing their sister, Diana, who lives nearby. Gertrude alienated them from anyone who cared. Paula once held the door open and dared Sylvia to get away and stay away. Sylvia had nowhere to go. Sylvia's last day of school was October 6th, the day after her parents' visit. Gertrude told the school Sylvia had no interest in going and pretended to be concerned. In reality, Gertrude banned Sylvia to the coal basement. Kai became one of Sylvia's primary attackers. He enjoyed body slamming Sylvia forcefully onto the concrete basement and tying her up for days at Gertrude's urging. Kids from the school visited the residence and participated in Sylvia's torture. Gertrude, the ringleader, trained them step by step. Nothing was off limits. If the children wanted to practice judo, Gertrude had them practice on Sylvia. Some kids put cigarettes out on Sylvia's skin to hear her cry. Gertrude would bathe Sylvia in scalding hot water until her skin blistered. Paula once beat Sylvia's face until she broke her wrist. Doctors put a cast on her arm while Paula bragged about exactly how she broke it. When she got home, she continued to hit Sylvia with her cast. Gertrude used a needle to carve the letter I into the flesh of Sylvia's abdomen. Unable to finish the full statement, she encouraged her 15-year-old neighbor, Richard Hobbs, to complete the task. I'm a prostitute and proud of it. He edged on her belly. Gertrude helped him spell prostitute. At Gertrude's request, Richard heated a metal hook and attempted to brand the letter S on Sylvia's chest, but instead branded her with the number 3. Gertrude justified it by saying Sylvia branded her child, and now she branded Sylvia. What are you going to do now? You can't get married now, Gertrude taunted. Sylvia whimpered. I guess there's nothing I can do. 
Kai returned and tied Celia up in the basement where he slammed her frail body into the wall over and over. Gertrude finally broke Sylvia's spirit. Jenny, she consoled her baby sister. I know you don't want me to die, but I'm going to die. I, I can tell. Her voice was weak and trembling. The beatings made Sylvia incontinent. Sylvia started to lose control of her limbs too. Gertrude knew Sylvia was taking a turn for the worse, so she permitted Sylvia to sleep on the mattress in the upstairs bedroom. After giving her a lukewarm bath, she condemned her back to the basement and forced her to write a letter. To Mr. and Mrs. Likens, I went with a gang of boys in the middle of the night and they said that they would pay me if I would give them something. So I got in the car and they got all what they wanted and when they finished they beat me up and left sores on my faces and all over my body. And they also put on my stomach, I'm a prostitute and proud of it. I have done just about everything that I could do just to make Gertie mad and cause more money than she's got. I've tore up a new mattress and peed on it. I've also cost Gertie doctor bills that she really can't pay and made Gertie a nervous wreck on all her kids. That night, Sylvia heard Gertrude and her children making plans to dump her in the woods. In a last-ditch effort, Sylvia tried to run, but Gertrude caught Sylvia dragged her inside and attempted to feed her toast. Sylvia didn't have the strength to eat. John tied Sylvia's wrists to the basement railing. Her toes barely touched the ground. Gertrude showed crackers into Sylvia's passion mouth. Sylvia told her she wasn't hungry and suggested she feed them to the dog. Gertrude then punched Sylvia in her belly. John force-fed her the contents of baby Dennis' diaper as well as her own fishes.